hiring and promoting a bunch of white women is not diversity. Let's like right off the bat, because they're the number one beneficiaries of all of the affirmative action uh, efforts and everything else. And so just really like diversity is so much more. So yes, it is it's absolutely black people, but it's, you know, it's people with disabilities, it's nationalities. Really, if you're going to truly talk about diversity and inclusion, it is the entire gamut. So that's been part of it. Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of Black men and provide a forum to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Hi, Keith Dent here, host of the Black Men Speak podcast. If you're a regular, welcome back. If this is your first time, I hope you come back and tell somebody about the show too. You can grow this thing. The first voice you heard was that of Tony Chapman, leadership speaker, author, and corporate relationship expert. We talked about his life being the only one, which included a bachelor's degree from Western Michigan's prestigious paper science and technology school, who knew that was a thing, to shifting gears to work with at-risk youth, and finally, delivering powerful presentations dealing with unconscious bias and how it not only affects individuals, but corporate culture. I think today's really going to resonate with people because Tony does a great job talking about what it was like being the only one at his organization and how he overcame it. On that note, let's start the show. Uh, Tony, well, welcome to the show today. How you doing, brother? I'm good, Keith, man. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. You know, it's great. I mean, I'm glad to see you again. I guess we, it was like, I think, January. When you it was that. right before COVID. Right before COVID, it right? Was, yeah. I think it was February even. You know, it was probably two or three weeks before the world shut down. Yeah, and, and who knows? And it was, the weather wasn't too bad back then. And now here we've been sequestered for, for a bit. And uh, I know, you know, you're a keynote speaker and everything. And how has the, how has the coronavirus kind of impacted that? Well, it's interesting. Initially, everything shut down, right? Almost like the 2008 recession, everything shut down. All my clients were like, we can't do anything. We're not traveling. And then one of my clients reached out to me and said, hey, um, you talk about disruption and this is like, we're being disrupted. What do we do? And so I started working with them. People started calling me for advice. Next thing you know, things blossom. And then George Floyd in Minneapolis hit. And, you know, I hate to say it, but the topic that everyone should have been talking about for decades became very relevant. And so, you know, I just do my thing virtually, whether it's, you know, Zoom or WebEx, or whatever the platform, and we figured out a way to have the conversations that we should have been having years ago. So, you know, it was an initial dip, but I think because I have clients, number one, my clients have a great relationship. Number two, a lot of them, several federal government. And then also um, really just because of the nature of the topics, I've been pretty busy. Okay. And what, so what are some of those, what are some of those things that you've been actually speaking on? A lot of it has been either, how do you deal with disruption when change comes out of nowhere and you're thrown into a loop and you're stressed out and you don't know where to go and you're treading water? Or how do we deal with inclusion and diversity and a bias? And how do we actually have the conversation? So those have been the two things that I've just been inundated with. Okay. Yeah. And 
I, I could see where, where that would be a hot, hot button issue, especially in kind of our corporate setting where, you know, disruption has been major, but especially in the fact that as I, in the view of diversity, a lot of our corporations don't have those uh, individuals, especially people of color in those leadership, you know, management positions. So what are some of the things in a, that you've, you've kind of highlighted for people to take notice? All right, so I'll talk really frank with you, more so than I would others. We'll just like really talk. Number one, hiring and promoting a bunch of white women is not diversity. Let's like right off the bat, because they're the number one beneficiaries of all of the affirmative action uh, efforts and everything else. And so just really like diversity is so much more. So yes, it is, it's absolutely black people, but it's, you know, it's people with disabilities, it's nationalities, Really, if you're going to truly talk about diversity and inclusion, it is the entire gamut. So that's been part of it. Part of it is, you know, there's been this thing where it's taboo to talk about religion, politics, and race. And so we can't have it be taboo anymore. We've got to be able to talk about it. And so leading some real facilitated discussions in the workplace and, and really hitting some of the hot buttons, but in a way that's non-threatening has been huge. And then to go and start addressing our biases and both from an individual standpoint and then from an organizational standpoint, what are some best practices that we can implement that will truly make a change and not just do stuff that makes us feel better, but stuff that actually moves the needle and makes a real change. Yeah, I can't wait to get to some of those topics but but let's get to you personally because i think you you know you kind of dealt with this yourself you know going growing up and being the sef, second african-american uh at western michigan in the prestigious paper and science and uh, let me get that right paper technology, technology. Yeah, yeah. so first thing what is paper science and oh. uh, you know how what was it like kind of being that kind of the second african-american to receive that degree, but I would assume, assume at the time you were probably one of the only African-Americans in, in your, you know, your field. Yeah. So, okay. Paper science, paper science is chemical engineering, but it's got a very specific focus on preparing you to work in the paper industry. So paper, you know, think about paper mills, places that make toilet uh, paper, whether it's toilet paper, printer paper, whatever paper you want to use envelopes. And so it's, you know, for the beginning of it, it's normal chemical engineering. And then you get into wood chemistry and polymers and surface chemistry. And it's a really deep dive. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, you know, how is it like being there? Let's even talk about how I got there. Okay. Well, so it's funny before we got on, you and I were talking about my son who just recently graduated from Cornell and he was a national merit scholar in high school and all this stuff. And he just, you know, off the chart smart. I think one of the challenges in high school is I underestimated myself. I didn't realize I was smart. You know, I thought, because, you know, you don't hear that. Nobody tells you you're smart, even though you're doing well. And so, you know, working with him, I understand what some of my counselors were saying in code, because what they were saying, and now I look at the numbers, I was actually like a National Merit Scholar runner up, but that's not the words they use. So I didn't know. So I I was afraid to apply at certain colleges and um, I had, I was fortunate 
I had a professor who also was my neighbor and he just liked me. And I was at the time, I was a lab assistant uh, for our chemistry lab. And he said, look, you're going to go on this tour of Western Michigan. Someone's going to pull you aside, spend some time with them. And he was actually the president of the paper science and technology department. And it's a really hard program to get in. They, they gave me a scholarship before I applied because even in talking with him, he knew who I was. And what I, the reason I was really focused on them is they had 100% placement for jobs for all of their candidates before graduation since 1942. So you're talking about, you make it through, you're guaranteed a really well-paying job. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, you get in in your first day, there's 120, 150 kids. And, you know, there's 150 kids. I'm the only black one, right? Wow. Okay. Uh, it whittles down to 25 by the time you graduate. And I'm still the only black one. And, you know, you're in a vacuum. There's just no other way to say it. You're in a vacuum. And I was in such a, I was in such a unique place that even, I, I laugh at it now. There's a group called NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers. I didn't even know Nesby existed till I was a senior in college. And Nesby didn't know I existed until I was a senior in college because no one would look for a black kid in paper science. It was just un, unheard of. And so I walked a really strange line between, you know, once I was past my freshman year, I didn't have, other than black history, I didn't have any classes with people who looked like me ever. Um, I didn't, I, the circles I were in, I just became isolated and thrown into this island. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it really messes with your identity. You know, I really mm. didn't figure out who I was. And that's kind of when I, I went through this metamorphosis and got into the black history studies and things of that nature, because, you know, I'm, I'm literally every party I go to, every social event I go to, I'm the only black person. And at first I thought I fit in, but pretty soon you realize, no, you don't really fit in. You're not, you're not a token. They, they're accepting you, but you're not 100% in. And that was my reality. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and overall, what was the, what was the um, breakout of as far as African-American or people of color on campus? Oh, on campus, it was probably like 20%. You know, I mean, it was a hybrid. I mean, Western Michigan's a big campus. I think 22,000 undergrad. Okay. And so when you get into marketing and other things, you have a much higher percent, maybe 15%, 15 to 20. But, you know, I was the only one, obviously, in my program. By my senior year, there was one other person who had gotten in. Um, and we became good friends, obviously. Right. right. But, yeah, so, but but the problem is, all of my classes were in one building. And so I didn't even see all the other black kids. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I had a good friend who was in another program who was a president of the alphas and we would talk and he tried to get me to join the alphas. But beyond that, I literally didn't see other people of color in my daily walk on campus because I was in one space and that space was very homogenous. Oh, yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Shout out to the alphas, fellow alpha here. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So and then, uh, you know, I know you went on to corporate and everything like that. But then you kind of had a kind of life altering change when you ran into some, you know, at risk youth. So tell me about that. What was what was that all about? What was that interaction? 
And, you know, how did it kind of impact, you know, the direction that you, you know, you've taken to this day? Sure. So I was working at, in Chicago at the time. Um, I was working at a company called Nalco Chemical Company, and I decided to volunteer at the Cabrini Green Youth Program. Cabrini Green at the time was, I think, the second largest housing project in the United States, right? Yeah. Huge. Yep. And so we would meet on Saturday. It was a mentoring program. I think it was Sundays, actually. And I just really connected with this group of, you know, six to eight-year-old kids. And we'd do things. And there was this one kid named Osi. And he was, you know, I, I think in retrospect, I look at Osi and I saw myself. He was a super smart kid, but just all the potential in the world, right? He had it. He had that personality it factor that everyone would listen to him when he said something, he just, he radiated. And one day he wasn't radiating. And I started talking to him. I was like, so Osi, what's going on and how are you doing? He goes, well, he didn't want to talk at first. And then eventually he did. And when he did, he said, well, you know, my mom's gone. And I said, like dead gone? He goes, no, 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 no. She's, you know, she's out, uh, you know, basically she'd go on these drug binges. And so he'd take care of his one-year-old brother. And I'm thinking, okay, so wait a second. You can't even go to school because you're taking care of your one-year-old brother and you're only six. So what's the likelihood that you're going to make it? I mean, really, with all this potential that you have, how are you going to make it? You can't even go to class. Who's understanding? Who's, who's empathetic to the situation? Who's helping you out? And so at that point, it just, it affected me in such a way that, you know, I was in the middle of working on a patent at the time. And I was in grad school at one of the most prestigious business schools in the country, but everything else just lost its importance compared to OC and all the other OCs that were out there. And so eventually I decided to leave corporate America and work in nonprofit to try to make a difference. That's great. Especially when one person can impact uh, you that much. I, I remember when I, uh, when I, you know, branched out not nonprofit work, how, you know, so it's at certain points, and I think it, it hits a lot of, especially African-American men, where the corporate life just doesn't have a lot of meaning, and you, you really want to do something that's meaningful, meaningful work and, and passionate. And mm -hmm. I remember working uh, at uh, Westside High School and Weekway High School in Newark, and, you know, having, dealing with some of those same stories, whereby, you know, the uh, youth that have a lot of potential, but then are kind of curtailed by some of the obstacles in their neighborhoods and environment that they're in. So, I, you know, I, I can really understand that. And so then we kind of touched upon, you know, really the work that you're, you're doing now and how um, you're really trying to change or at least let corporations and teams know some of the things that they're, you know, biases and things that are not making their teams great, leaders great. Uh, so one of the things that I thought was fascinating was that, you know, of course, people of color, they have to deal with internal, you know, biases that they, you know, have to deal with every day uh, in their workplace and, you know, even other marginalized groups as well. So what are what are some of those um, kind of and you have these kind of simple like mind hacks that you, you know, in looking at, you know, looking at your profile and everything and your talks. So what are some of those hacks that. Um, that people should be mindful of when they are, you know, when they feel that they are a victim of bias. Oh, so, you know, I mean, you know, when they're a victim is harder. I'm going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. just 
just straight up honest with you, very few people, when you're a victim of bias and you bring it up, respond positively. It's almost, you know, no matter how you say it, the first response is, I'm not racist. You know, there's, unfortunately, there's no way to get around it. One of the best things to do is to have allies who come in and disrupt the bias for you. And so it's one thing for, you know, if you and I are in the middle of a situation and someone is biased towards you, for you to say something, it's a totally different thing if myself or someone who looks like the person who is actually doing the action steps in and disrupts it. That, that third party is critical. Um, and I, I can't say that enough. Having a third party in there and that we have an agreement that they disrupt the bias is you, you can't get past it. Well, that's got to be pretty hard, right? Especially, especially now since, you know, once, once kind of George Floyd and all the, you know, racists came to the forefront, are people really stepping up, especially in that way? You know, You'd be surprised. It's, it's fascinating. Number one, it's what, what I think has happened with this George Floyd thing is it's removing the middle ground. Right now it's polarizing. Either you are with it or you're against it, but you've got to choose a side. There is no Switzerland anymore. And so it's amazing how many people either have shown that they were already awake, but more importantly, how many other people are actually awakening and stepping forward. And the funny thing is you can't predict who it is. Like there are people that when you meet him, you think, oh gosh, really? And then you talk to me like, oh, this person really gets it. And they're really willing to put their their reputation on the line and their emotions on the line in the, in the, the moment. So it's definitely a thing that can happen. Um, I think what's also really what's happened since George Floyd and really, if we're going to be honest, since the election of 2016 is what used to be unacceptable in terms of discrimination has become acceptable. And as bad as that is, for the first time, you know who people really are, right? Mm, so right. there was a point in which there were people that maybe I even went to church with or I hung out with, and I didn't know what was actually going on in their head. And now I know. Now it's clear because now they feel empowered to verbalize things that they didn't verbalize before, thinking that it was acceptable. And so, you know, it, it's... It's fascinating, man. It's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing how one man can bring about such a change in people where, but you know, and yeah, and it was a lot, especially of corporate America. And you never did, you didn't, never did know where people stand, stood, especially verbally that, you know, they would do the microaggressions maybe on the, on the sly. But now that people are largely very vocal about uh, their feelings about about people. Yeah, I mean, you hit it because I know that you and I share this experience of having been the only the person of color, the, the so-called unicorn. Because of certain microaggressions, we knew who people were, but we, we, we weren't sure. You weren't 100%. You're like, okay, they're acting weird, but you know, but I, but I also know them. I hang out with them, blah, 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 blah. Now you know. You know, now it's, you have a person in authority who has consistently tested the boundaries to say, no, you can actually do this. You can say, if this is how you feel, let it out. And so, you know, it's made the workplace very interesting. I do a lot of work with the federal government and some of these workplaces have become, some of them become hostile and some of them become, you know, more, 
hey, we need to take a stand. So it's it's really weird to see. It's really weird to see how people respond to this, man. It really, it's just, that is what it is. And so in your talks, was there ever a time where, I, I guess an African-American man came up to you and described a situation that was kind of surprising or, you know, some of the issues that they were dealing with? No. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, there's nothing, as far as what they were dealing with, man, we've seen it all before. I, I, I hate to say it that way. Nothing <laughs> new. I'll say this though. So speaking at a women's conference last year, Okay. And an African-American female, she shared about being, you know, she couldn't have been, let, let's say, being generous. Let's say she was in her early 30s, okay? But she went to a segregated high school, was the first African-American doctor or person in her medical program. And so she shared about being the only African-American female doctor working for the Veterans Administration in her city. And it was only unique in that the segregated school part was unique. Uh, beyond that, really, most of us are going through the same thing. And that, so, you know, if you don't mind me jumping on this, that yeah. actually brings up a really weird thing for me, right? Um, you know, I was, you know, in all the AP classes, but I was always the only black person. I was in certain, all the circles I was in, whether it was debate or whatever, because I was the only, I thought I was really unique. Turns out there's lots of people like me, but we're so spread out that we all think we're the only ones. And we don't really get that opportunity to interact and realize that your story and my story are almost the exact same, but we, we're experiencing it in different cities, different times or whatever, but it's still the same stuff. And that was really eye-opening to me. I've been thinking about that a lot recently in that, you know, we go through the same thing, but like I remember moving, I'm, I'm in Harlem now, and a really good friend of mine, her sister passed away and I, we, you know, I helped her out with a funeral. And when I got to the funeral, you know, I saw all of these people who grew up in Harlem who were like me. And they all knew each other. I'm like, this whole community of people, of doctors and attorneys and, you know, very educated, very intellectual. I'm like, I didn't know that there were communities of people like this. And that was really eye-opening for me. Wow, yeah. Because there aren't that many. These communities out there where empowerment or excellence are important, where you can, the safety of, the ki of your kids, because you know, they're going to be people in your community that that look like you and also care about the same things and care about your, you know, your children as well. So I'm sure that was, I'm sure that's very comforting to be in. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, cause you, so you're, you're saying, you know, we, you, we see the kind of the same things, the, even though we may think we're the only ones and, and this is primarily, I guess, just for the millennials, cause they're kind of the ones coming up or what are some of the things they should, uh, that they are seeing or that you, that are just the common things that are, that are still happening out there in regards to kind of bias or, or discrimination or what have you. Okay. Um, this week, the CEO Wells Fargo said, we can't find any good black candidates. Right. That I, I hear that so many times. Uh, and I, I work with a lot of organizations that are highly technical, right? One where 
the majority of people are PhDs in marine biology. Another where, you know, I'm, I'm actually dealing with a, a physics lab of primarily PhDs in physics of everything from, you know, AI to, you know, whatever nanoparticles, whatever you want to talk about. And it's the same argument. And, you know, I, I've started challenging organizations when they say that. I'm like, okay, look, you're technical. Have you done any kind of quantitative analysis on your hiring process and on the pipeline? And the minute they do, no, there's tons of good tan candidates looking past them. So there's the there's no good candidate um, myth out there. Number two, you've got to deal with um, disproportionate opportunities, whether they're opportunities for training, opportunities for mentorship, you know, those opportunities and access to resource are still being given out in a very disproportionate way for whatever the justification is, but it's clearly not based on anything objective. It's, it's that obvious. I'd say three, just the propensity for microaggressions in the workplace. You have a lot of people, you have a lot of situations where you're just treated differently. I mean, okay, desegregation is 19, late 50s? Right, early sixties. Right, right. I mean, my parents grew up in a world where they couldn't go into certain restaurants, they couldn't drink from certain water fountains, right? There are managers who grew up in that world who are still managing. So even if they've addressed their conscious issues, which they may or may not have, some of that stuff is still there. And so, you know you really have to kind of kick the tires of an organization and see what you're walking into because even in many of your companies with good cultures, there's still a, a good amount of discrimination. It's just far more subtle. Yeah. I'm sure that takes a lot of, uh, takes a lot of questioning of those managers and leaders uh, to figure out and dig deep how they really feel and how they really think. And, to know that, oh, your thoughts and your even unconscious thoughts are affecting the opportunities that you're trying to give, you're trying to give people. Yeah. And that's assuming that they care. I mean, let's be honest. And I'm saying the major, the vast majority care. Don't get me wrong. But that's assuming that they care because, you know, here's what happens. And you can, it's not even just discrimination. It's anything. You have someone who's just a bad manager and they're mean and they're harsh but they, they're productive and they get things done, they get a pass on a lot of stuff because they get stuff done, right? Even though they may be damaging the culture. And so at some point, they don't really even think they need to address any of these other things because they're still looked at as a high-performing person. And so that's really where it gets hard. And I'll be honest with you, working with the federal government, it's harder right now with this, uh, executive order that was signed this past week by Trump, where, you know, there are parts to it that, okay, that absolutely makes sense. But it's almost to the point where if you make any white person feel bad, then you're in danger of, you know, your training was not good and we need to make sure you never do any training for the government again. It's kind of getting to that point right now. And it's a really crazy situation. Yeah, I remember I do. I didn't get to read the article about or the about the Wells Fargo the CEO, but I, I knew there was <laughs> what was behind that. I was like, okay, yeah, you can't find any good candidates. You're really, meaning you're just really not trying to look. Right. And, and, that's, yeah. un, and that's unfortunate because, you know, 
Wells Fargo has already been under so much scrutiny, uh, you know, a couple years back. It's like, okay, um, obviously they haven't done a lot to kind of solve their, you know, solve their issues. But uh, hopefully, you know, they, you know, bring in someone like yourself and start to make the changes that they need to make, you know, so they can find those candidates. You know, and you hope that, I mean, there are plenty of organizations that are taking this really seriously and are doing a stellar job at trying to change the culture. And so I certainly don't want to sound pessimistic because there's a lot of great movement out there. A lot of companies are investing the money and putting in the effort and doing the work. And, you know, I think that there are far more good hearted companies and leaders that just happen to have blind spots than anything else. And so for those individuals that let's say they are the only one and they're, you know, the, maybe they're, they love their job, they love what they're doing, um, but it's, it's slowly kind of affecting their mental health. Uh, what are some of the, you know, you talked about kind of de- detoxifying your life so you can kind of get back on track. You know, how, how do individuals do that so they can actually go to work each day and feel kind of good about what they're doing and who they're working with? First, change your community. You've got to find some other people who are like you, who you can talk to, who you can have conversations with. And, and in doing that, detoxify your community. Because the reality is there are people who are threatened by our success. We normally label them haters, but you know there are people that are just threatened by our success. I think the stronger your community, that makes a big, big difference in your ability to navigate these spaces. So that would be the first thing. Second, look, take your mental health and emotional health seriously. If that means at times you need to to hop off of social media for a while, hop off of it for a while. Think there's a lot of studies that show the majority of black people, African-Americans in this country, we suffer from PTSD. And so the the reality of maybe needing to see a therapist, you know, I highly promote that. I think we need to look at doing whatever we do or reading books that are very introspective and healing and doing that. Um, I think also realizing in all these situations how big or really how small the real problems are. A lot of times in work spaces, if you have negative situations, negative people, people are really draining your neck, your health. It's really just a few people. It's not the majority. It's not like, you know, the whole group It's normally, okay, you got this person over here. I need to just stop hanging out with and this person here. And, and in that number one, then navigate the amount of time that you spend with each of these individuals. Number two, when you walk in, you realize, you know what? I can't, I just don't take this personally anymore. This is not about me. It's about them. And I'm not going to let the way they project their weaknesses on me start to affect me and I internalize it. And now I'm stressed out and I'm unhappy because this person here can't deal with their own, you know, internal issues. So th- that's really the start for me is if you deal with your community, take your mental health seriously and then put people in perspective. That'll help you a lot. Great. Yeah. So it's all about mindset and who you hang around. I think those are those have always been common uh, common themes that help us, you know, with our, um, you know, our mental health. Cause it's very, it's, it's key and important. I think we have, we have kind of, um, 
not done a good job with that, allowing you know our environment to kind of affect us, and we need to start to align with, align ourselves with the right people, and, and see people who, for who they are, and not try to uh, change them. They are who they are, and if we can align ourselves with the right people, we, we'll do. Uh, I think we'll do much better. I agree. So, g- tell me a little bit about your your book, the force the force multiplier, because we have we, we have a lot of these. You know, there's a lot of us out there. I think can really. Um, benefit from your book. So what's your, what's your book about? So the book really is about how to be an effective leader. You know, so here's what happened for me. I spent a lot of time dealing with leadership and, you know, you would think based on our previous conversation, it's all about diversity and inclusion. It's not, I do a lot with how to be a better leader, how to lead teams, how do people work well together. And over the years, I've just seen the same thing over and over and over again. And what I realize is a lot of people are a, put into leadership positions for the wrong reason. They're really good contributors, but they're not necessarily, they haven't really demonstrated a capacity to lead. And then number two, they're often put in this position without any training. And so what I wanted to do was create a how-to book. Basically, here is how you lead. You know, not a theoretical, you know, you read this book and you kind of have the concept of leadership better, but really a, I'm leading right now. If I read this book for an hour today, I will tomorrow be a better leader than I was today because I read this book. That's what I wanted to make. What, did that happen to you when you were kind of put in a leadership position? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was put in a leadership position. Now, I was given training, but it was just kind of like, all right, cool. Uh, you're the highest performer, so go lead these people. And really, I realize now, and this is not in my first company, but at a, at a later one, my first company had figured something really figured something out that was really wise. And that was they had multiple career paths because there was a way of rewarding people who are high contributors without putting them in a leadership position. And so, you know, I was thrown into leadership um, the first time, you know, sink or swim. And I sank, <laughs> you know, realistically, I, I kind of sank. But then after a while, I'm like, OK, I have to figure this thing out. And so I got mentors. I, I put in the work to learn how to lead people, but it would have been so much more effective if I had been given the resources on how to lead people. I'm looking forward to getting a copy myself and read Nick because any, any tips to be a better leader, not only with my family and my organizations is really awesome. So I thank you for, the, for being able to put that out in the world. So absolutely. Uh, so one of the, the kind of the last thing I wanted to, talk about maybe see I wanted to just see what was on your mind you know as an African-American man what are some of the things that you're either struggling with or um, feel that you can uh, put out in the universe that we need to know about boy I mean where do you start I mean we're <laughs> we're in the cauldron right now I, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm a bit amazed no I'm not I'm not as surprised as I should be about where our country is, right? I'm, I, I, this is predictable, unfortunately. I think there's a part of me that I'm surprised at how people can look at reality and say it's not there. That's, there was a movie that came out, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. It was called Mars Attacks. Did you ever see that movie? I, I didn't see it. I, I, I know the title. Yeah. I, yeah. It was a really goofy movie. Jack Nicholson was the president. And basically, like, these aliens came to Earth, and they kept saying, we come in peace. Then they kill people. 
But then they go, oh, no, they're killing people. Go, yeah, but we come in peace. And they kept going back and forth. And then they keep going, well, they say they're coming in peace, so they must be coming in peace. And yet the whole time they're showing you we're not coming in peace. I feel like I'm looking at the world and it's like people are saying, here's what we're really doing. But because we're not overtly saying it, people are pretending that is not here, right? We're, we're literally marching with rifles and torches and swastikas and people no no but i don't think it really means that i'm like it means that you can't how do you miss this so there's a part of me that's kind of dealing with all of that and i think that you know this election coming up you know this is i i I don't know that you can overstate the importance of this one this is a a big deal i think beyond that though what i'm thinking about a lot there's a part of this where a lot of the topics we talk about, they're really more scratching the surface. We're dealing with the symptoms and not the real disease. The real issue is that people aren't whole. They're not whole. They're not happy. They're not living according to who they're meant to be. And when you do that, you need someone else to look down on to make your life seem better. And so I really feel that part of where I'm moving in my own work is to deal with the inside of people. How are people really doing emotionally? What are the things that have kept people from living according to their purpose and and who they're built to be? What's the baggage that they're carrying? There's actually, we talked about Cornell. Funny enough, there's a, a researcher at Cornell. His name's Anthony Burroughs. He's the first person that I've seen who actually has taken how much a person lives according to their person, their, their purpose and their mission in life and has been able to correlate that with whether or not they're going to be discriminatory. So what he's been able to show mathematically is that the more you live according to your purpose, the less likely you are to be racist, the less likely you are to be misogynistic less likely you are to be xenophobic because you're whole. That's really what it comes down to. And so, although I think we need to address a system that has perpetuated supremacy on an individual basis, it will never get fixed if people aren't whole because they're going to need something to hold on to to make them feel better about the life that they're not living. Yeah, that's, that's pretty dynamic. And, but we were never we were never presented as whole. At least we were what three fifths uh, of a of a man, and so we we've we've been dealing with that. And I don't think uh, we've we have given the opportunity to, to be whole. So we're, there's probably a lot of a lot of pain and suffering out there, and it's be, it's evident based on how not not just the interactions of of, of the people when we are killed, but just how we deal with with pain and and suffering or or being murdered so it's pretty it's a tough thing yeah. and i mean and it's so i think there's two sides of it there's us we who've been the i hate to use the, the targets i use the word target instead of victim the targets of all of this we've never been given a chance to be whole right and even now you know one of the hardest things one of the hardest things about being the only whether you're black or female or whatever one of the hardest things is to figure out how to be authentically you, 
right? It's like you're always wearing a mask and you always got your shields up. It's just, that's really a hard thing. And so we often don't even have the luxury of being able to take our shields down enough to address what's going on within us. But then also on the other side of it, you have to look at the perpetuators of all of this stuff. They're like this also because they're equally as damaged. And so that's really, I think the real, that's the only solution where the end result is actually better is to deal with that hole. And when we deal with that hole, then we've got a chance to actually, you know, have a real society. Yeah, absolutely. And if we could just, if we could somehow come together and communicate and remove the fear, we, we would be, mm-hmm. we would definitely be in much, much better place. But it, it does, it takes a lot, it takes vulnerability uh, on people's parts to, and removing some of those biases uh, that people just, that have out there. Yeah, I think there's also another fear that we're going to take revenge. We want to be honest. I think that, you know, sometimes in some of our workshops, we look at some of Jane, like a video of, you know, Jane Elliott is uh, blue eyed, brown eyed experiment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So sometimes we'll, you know, look at some of the videos from that and have a conversation. And what almost always comes up is, you know, when the kids who were on the bottom the first day, when they're on the top the second day, they are, how did they treat the kids? And really what they're saying is, if we really do achieve equality, how much vengeance are you going to take out on us for all that's happened? I think that's, that's a fear that's not really expressed a lot, but that's actually there. And until we, you know, I mean, I was thinking about it yesterday because I'm in Harlem and there's a Black Lives Matter march yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we're, mar- we're marching to just say that we matter. Not even to say we're equal, but just matter, right? But I think that there's a legitimate fear, and that fear is tied to a guilt of, you know, what happens when equality really is hit? Is there some other agenda? And so I do think that there's a need for those conversations so that people can say, no, that's, we really are just trying to be equal. That is really... We want our humanity restored. We want our dignity restored. We want to be treated as actual human being. It's not, you know, beyond that, but I don't think that people fully have believed it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, and that's heavy. We just want to, we want to be treated as human beings. It's plain and simple. And when we can start to do that, we can start to heal, you know, as a country uh, and as people first so this has been a great discussion i mean sure we can we can do more and we'll i think we'll be able to do it again how can if people are either looking to hire you as a speaker or, or even follow you how can they do that first thing website tonychapman.com real simple it has connections to all of my social media and ways to email me i respond to every email i'm probably most active on facebook because i do facebook lives three days a week so Tony Chapman at Facebook. I would also say find me on Instagram. Uh, that's Tony Chapman Speaks. Probably going to change it to like the real Tony Chapman or something. I don't know. But uh, Tony Chapman on Instagram. Uh, I am on LinkedIn and I'm active on LinkedIn. I try to keep that far more businessy. And I am act- I'm getting active again on Twitter. I kind of back off of Twitter. So if you find me on social media, we'll be connected. 
Great. Well, Tony, thank you for being on the show tonight. Uh, Once again, this is Keith Den from Black Men Speak. We're we're out here trying to highlight African-American men such as Tony and others that we're out here trying to do our part to impact and save our communities. Yep. All right. Black Men Speak was written and produced by yours truly and edited by Grace Chum. If you enjoyed this podcast today and you wanted to know more about Tony Chapman, our speaker, you can go to his website, TonyChapman.com, or check out his book, The Force Multiplier, How to Lead Teams Where Everyone Wins. Also, don't forget to share and subscribe to Black Men Speak Podcast. After every show, we end with a quote. And today's quote goes like this. Characterize people by their actions, and you will never be fooled by their words. Everyone have a great week, and we'll see you next time, Lord willing. Peace.